episode of the Fertility Podcast with Kate Davis and I. Now, let me just tell you something about Kate. Oh dear. Um, because if you've been listening to this podcast a while, you'll know that um, it's been a couple of months since I invited Kate to join the co-hosting realms of this podcast. And I'm always learning new things about Kate. I've learned that she's climbed mountains. Today, I have learned two fascinating facts. The first being that she is the only independent UK fertility nurse consultant. So this podcast is the only UK-based fertility podcast with an independent UK fertility nurse consultant on it. I just want to point out, it really, it really doesn't sound Look, that... there's yeah, an only no. in there. <laughs> and not only that, whilst we're talking about onlys, I learned today that Kate has not only met the Queen, mm-hmm. and we were having this conversation because my mother is going to meet the Queen, but she's had the Queen at her house for tea. I have had the Queen at my house for tea. The Queen came for tea. Yeah, I know. That's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty impressive. It was the easiest way to get my children to have a day off school. Imagine that, you know, <laughs> having to go to go and kind of beg for a day off school, actually, to say, yeah, well, the Queen's coming for tea. That, that really wasn't a problem. <laughs> I just wanted to build Kate up a bit because um, it, we've been having lots of fun um, making this podcast together. She is blushing. When we when we aren't we aren't always able to do it in the same place, which is what's happening right now. We we, we watch each other on WhatsApp. We will be we will be recording soon yeah. in the same place. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, Isla the dog will will make another um, appearance. She might. For now, though, we're going global with our guests because the podcast is listened to in over ninety countries and. Um, it's always fascinating to me who finds it and who gets in touch. And our next guest is a fertility expert called Dean Morbeck, who contacted me on LinkedIn after listening to the podcast. So here is Kate and I having a, a quick catch up with Dean about the work he does. And he's at a conference called ASRM, which caused me lots of problems trying to say during the chat. Um, but I think you'll find what he has to say, especially on embryo transfers. Interesting. Here he is. So we're now going to welcome Dean Morbeck, who is the Scientific Director at Fertility Associates, to the podcast to talk about the work he's been doing, the vast number of cycles in New Zealand and Malaysia, 4,000 cycles you oversee or have overseen, Dean, is that right? Yeah, that's per annum, correct. Per annum. Wow. So Kate and I were really keen to talk about the work you do. And I suppose the the differences in in the work you do, you and I have spoken about some of the changes that you've seen, and you're currently in the state at ASRM, so we want to know more about that too. So first of all, though, tell us a little bit about the work that you are doing, those 4,000 cycles per annum, and, and if you've seen a change in the types of treatments or whether it's the types of people coming forward for the treatment. That's a good question. So we really haven't seen that much of a change. I mean, I saw a dramatic change going from the U.S. to New Zealand in terms of how treatment's delivered and which patients uh, are are coming in for treatment because there is some publicly funded treatment in New Zealand as well. Uh, But as far as the actual treatments going on, we're pretty conservative in New Zealand in terms of uh, how much uh, PGS or PGTA, whichever flavor you want to call it of late, uh, you know, genetic testing, screening of embryos, we're pretty conservative on that front. And there's a, still a lot of debate around that one. And we also do only pretty much single embryo transfer, uh, which is pretty unique to New Zealand and Australia. And we have uh, otherwise pretty standard approach to 
uh, fertility care. And you mentioned about um, that you tend to do single embryo transfer. Um, and we're kind of quite interested really in your views on multiple embryo transfer because I know that's kind of a conversation that um, is quite an interesting one to have um, and also as you're at ASRM um, be quite interesting to hear about has that topic come up what's the general kind of feelings is it something that we'll see more of or less of what, what's the kind of general feeling out there while you've been out there? So, so one, one big thing that was announced at the beginning of the conference was this is the first year that uh, the country of the United States has seen a decrease in the twin rate across the board. So not just from IVF, but IVF is what contributes the most twins. Uh, and by transferring single embryos, uh, finally, the twin rate has started to decrease in the U.S. So that actually is considered a win. And the goal obviously for us as practitioners is to provide a healthy baby, a singleton uh, to the patients. Uh, twins and triplets, while they appear, um, you know, when we see them, we're in a park and we see twins, uh, they're lovely. Of course, they're charming. And, and a lot of people would love to have twins to get two babies out of the way at one time or just because they're cute. But uh, we do know, and it's, it's well recognized by, you know, the obstetrician societies that uh, the risks associated with having twins and especially triplets, but, but we can just focus on twins. I mean, it's about eight times uh, higher risks for a variety of complications to mom, to babies. And then actually, even after uh, the babies are born, the challenges financially and time, and it really involves whether or not, you know, the, does the couple, how strong is the couple going into that? How much family support do they have? Because having twins is, is uh, quite an additional bur burden. So I think overall, we're seeing that, uh, you know, finally, it's coming down. Uh, here in the US, they're using PGS or PGTA to drive that number down as far as the amount of twins by transferring more single euploid embryos. Whereas in New Zealand, Australia, uh, they just took the approach in the last 20 years to say, you know, it should just be single embryo transfers for most patients. Uh, and they've had a really low, like less than 10% twin rate for quite a while. Because it is something that the HFEA in, in the UK have been speaking quite a lot about. I was at their, their um, annual conference earlier in the year and the Multiple Birth Foundation were talking about the work that they've been doing to encourage clinics working with the HFEA, the regulator, to just do these single embryo transfers. But... I know you feel that the UK still got a way to go, don't you? Yeah, it seems like they they relaxed a little bit in their um, their goals. I think they I haven't followed it exactly, but I think they had a pretty uh, ambitious target to get under ten percent, and then they perhaps changed that uh, to not be as strong. And I was just reviewing the league tables for the HFEA, and actually, it's quite interesting because the US and the UK both have league tables, so you can see individual clinic results. Um, and and I was surprised to see that there's quite a few clinics with high twin rates where we're talking 20% or higher. Uh, and that's actually one of the uh, talks that's happening today here in Philadelphia is uh, a group out of UCLA looked at the U.S. data and took the top or they took just large programs. So they have to do at least 1,000 cycles. They had 62 cycles or 62. Uh, so they took large programs that do at least a thousand cycles and they had 62 programs in that set 
And when they looked at the top 15 for pregnancy rates or live birth rates, all but one had the worst twinning and triplet risk rates. So you have this trade-off of saying, we want to get a higher pregnancy rate, but if you're going to get a higher pregnancy rate and be able to really compete in the league tables, then you're going to get this higher twinning and triplet rate as well. And so that's where there's this a bit of a dichotomy in, in how we approach things where we say, yeah, we want to have league tables. We want to be able to provide the results to the patients, but the patients just really look at the pregnancy rates, delivery rates, and they don't get that much interest or have that knowledge to know that, well, if there's a 30% twin rate, that that actually could be quite adversarial for them in terms of having, uh, you know, uh, complications that result in, you know, hospitalization or even an early loss of twins, uh, you know, so really not a, a desirable outcome. So that must be quite difficult if you're presented by a couple who maybe really feel that they're at their last chance and would quite like to have a multiple embryo transfer just to, I guess, give them the best chances. Those conversations must be quite difficult to have for you, you know, having to explain the rationale understandably as to why you would not want to do that, but also, I guess, massively understanding where the patient is coming from that sat on the other side of the table. Right, right. It's a great point. And I just make it clear that actually we don't have a, a mandatory single embryo transfer policy in New Zealand. Uh, it's it's more of a default that that's what we transfer. And given the certain clinical situations, we may transfer to um, and so actually it's 97% of women under 35 have uh, only one embryo. And so 3% have two. So that still can happen. And that example you give is a good example. If, if the conditions are such that we say, yeah, there's a low likelihood of twins resulting from this. So, you, you know, that's usually when a double embryo transfer occurs. There's this uh, myth that, you know, you're going to have a higher pregnancy rate with uh, transferring to but you actually have the same or even higher by transferring them consecutively. So, you know, you may have to wait one more cycle to do a frozen embryo transfer to get that baby, but your chances then of having, you know, an adverse outcome from twins drops considerably. Because two of my best friends who have had IVF treatment have had twins and mm -hmm. both of them had had failed cycles and they decided on that attempt that was successful that they were going to have the to put in now i don't know if they can't remember whether the extent of the risks were explained to them and i know obviously there is the duty of, of care from mm -hmm. the clinic to um to advise and explain but i don't think from the conversations that i've had with people that have gone through that that people really when you're at that vulnerable place that you really take on the risks so it seems like the education and, and i know i remember from the early days of going mm -hmm. to open days to the clinics there was presentations about multiple embryo transfers but you don't take it in because you're quite far removed when you're just going to learn about this stuff when you're at that point of the decision and one of my friends said it was happening it happened one of them right. seemed to talk about that the her and her husband had quite a period of time to talk about it and and the other one talked about it being quite a rushed decision and i'm not convinced that there is enough forward for forewarning of the the, the risks yes. and education of the risks when people are so vulnerable in in their you know their wants to to have that outcome that we've been talking about 
right? No, that's definitely a, a, a problem that we see that I saw in the U.S. Uh, quite a bit. I, I obviously in, in New Zealand now we don't have that uh, to deal with, and, and it's largely because. Uh, well, let me just take a step back there. So that is a problem that that you know getting the right education to the patients at the right time uh, is critical. And one of the challenges we're faced with is patients come in with the idea that twins are okay. And so they have to really, it, it's the clinic's duty to make it clear that there are these substantial risks and that while you'll see, you know, beautiful twins in the park, what you don't see is, you know, a thought bubble over a woman walking that's had a miscarriage because she had two or, or had NICU and had all the extra complications. I mean, we never see those things. Those are all hidden, all of the adverse effects. All we see is the positive outcomes um, because usually they're, they're quite healthy. Uh, so, so that's the first step is definitely to, to somehow provide better education up front. Um, so the other one is that really, if we look to behavioral economics, um, there's this nudge theory uh, reported by Richard Thaler, which is that if you, if you have a default value that you say, this is what we do, then it's the odds are that the individual will follow that default value. To actually change from that requires more effort. So if clinics were to say, our default is to transfer one embryo, they don't say you can't do more, but if it's just the default and they make it really clearly known, then when you go into that transfer, you're expecting to get one embryo. And only if you've really looked into things and done your research, would you ask for that second one and then hopefully get the additional education about it. Um, at that point. But we, we do know there's differences in how doctors and clinics uh, look at the risk of twins. Um, you know, I, you could be cynical and say it's based on the desire to have higher pregnancy rates. I do think there are some that just really have a strong feeling of there's autonomy for the patient. They should be able to choose what they want. Twins are common. It's, you know, it does have increased risk. Uh, but by just offloading that to the patient to say you get to make the choice without really having the patient understand the risks. Uh, I don't think it's doing justice to the to, to, to the care we're providing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right because I don't think, you know, thinking about the general public, I don't think they would really be thinking, oh yeah, twins and what and the risk that that poses to their health and the baby's health and as you say then the financial risk. I, don't, I just don't think that people generally would see that. I think they see as you as you rightly said the the joy of having two twins and how what that can give you, but not actually fully understand all those high risks that are present. Right. Yeah, I, I actually had a personal uh, experience where my brother-in-law, uh, they went through IVF and uh, they actually had triplets and delivered very early. And uh, the two girls now are 16 and the, the boy didn't survive and they were in the NICU for a long time. Uh, you know, th this was a success in the sense that they made it through it fine. They're a strong couple. Um, but a lot of couples don't, and it's just such an extra burden to add. And you never, you know, that's what you don't see when you see twins. You don't see how many other people are affected in, in a bad way from having two or three embryos put back. So what kind of conversations do you hope that you hear more of? I mean, you talked about New Zealand's um, leading the way, advocating the selective single embryo transfer. We know that the UK are trying to educate and the conference that I sat in was highlighting the importance of this education at all levels in in the process from the patient through to the clinic I, I mean you're you're at a, a, a conference at the moment and the information is out there are people open to it are you are you confident that the, there is going to be this sea change 
Yeah, I, it, we're seeing it. Uh, I saw it even before I left. So I left the U.S. four years ago for New Zealand and and where I was, I was at the Mayo Clinic for 10 years. And we had seen our elective single embryo transfer rate going up considerably just by following the guidelines of the society. So the ASRM has guidelines that make it pretty clear that you should only be putting back one embryo on a good prognosis patient. Uh, for some reason, a lot of people think it needs to be euploid, that that would help. Um, but really, you know, a good prognosis, young patient under 35 with a good quality embryo should only have one back. And there's a, there's a pretty good sea change in the U.S. happening where there's still many more twins than in the U.K. and, you know, quite a few more than in, in New Zealand, Australia. But I think it's just a matter of, of the clinics having confidence in the fact that while well, we're doing more freeze-alls, we know that we can freeze the extra embryos and have another chance and it just means one more transfer as opposed to uh, putting two back in on the, on the first transfer. One thing that we are really keen to talk about on our podcast is is kind of support for fertility patients. And, and you know, it's such an important area, isn't it? And I think it's something that set in the UK and I don't know what it's like um, for you guys in New Zealand, but support is, is an area that I think probably within clinics, maybe doesn't get quite as much attention as it perhaps it should it's it's yep you took the words right out my out my mouth it's definitely getting better as i think our patients are pushing and are empowered and pushing for better support so it's definitely increasing and we've got some really really good examples of clinics that are leading on fantastic patient support what do you feel in general, and particularly for, for, for you in New Zealand and also when you were in Australia, what, what do you feel about the support that's offered to patients and is there enough or could we do more? Yeah, the, the, clearly support is the next big frontier for this field. And we've, you know, we've been chasing after technologies that are going to keep, you know, how do we make this better? How do we make this better? We, you know, we put a lot into it and it's gotten quite good. Uh, and there's still a lot of people that just want to focus on that. Ideally, we would want to keep patients in treatment as long as possible to give them the best chance, and that requires giving good support. Uh, and that is a tide that's also changing uh, that we're seeing coming around. I've envisioned it for quite a while that you know really we could compare what we do in in fertility treatment, where where it is a lot of customer service. You know, it's patients, but you know it's service oriented. And I've likened it to the hotel industry and that we should be providing, you know, top level service to give the best experience possible. Because uh, what a miserable thing for people to have to go through to begin with. And then when you have, you know, no emotional support, uh, it's, it's even worse. So uh, to answer your question, though, regarding how much is there being done in New Zealand and the U.S., it's really quite spotty at this point still. I mean, New Zealand and Australia follow pretty much the UK guideline of having a counselor on staff and that, you know, it's available for patients, but that's just not an effective way to meet the day-to-day -day needs of, you know, the emotional support. Uh, they're there for third party, they're there for, you know, really distressed patients, but how do you address just the well-being from the start? Um, there's some programs in the U.S. that are doing some innovative things. I was just uh, at a luncheon yesterday with a um, psychologist who uh, she, her whole focus is on couple therapy and she's really you know strongly believing that uh, you know that's where you start for her is to make sure that that couple 
uh, is really strong to begin with. And we were just talking about the, you know, the impact of, of the strength of the relationship on the treatment course and how that, again, is, is a matter of, of patients being aware of that important variable coming into the treatment. Just picking up on that, um, of the strength of the couple, I had a conversation the other day with a clinic in India who put a lot of emphasis on meditation. And I don't mean literal sitting and meditating, although that is obviously a, a, a great part of a practice that is, is beneficial. But talking about um, the language that they're using from the outset with patients to enable them to have coping mechanisms in place to empower the mind and body and um, they were talking quite passionately about how they feel that this is life-changing that if they can address from the start a couple coming to them for whether it's early investigations or treatment that empowering their the way that they're thinking about the outcome um, and by using certain meditational techniques I don't know whether it's as far as NLP or, or what but we, the focus was on meditation it's a conversation that they're going to be talking about at the fertility show that's happening uh, in in London uh, in, at the start of November um, but about that connection that mind-body connection having an impact on the success of the treatment now I was playing devil's advocate because I'm talking to two scientists here and I'm sure you're going to agree that you know you want you want evidence-based information when you're talking about this and and how can if there is a physical problem within a body uh, that mind-body connection fix that well it obviously can't but I suppose in that sense it then talks about enabling the coping mechanism to protect to put to prepare you for that outcome where do you sit with that kind of um, more holistic approach Dean? Yeah, I, I'm all for uh, anything that provides a, a more uh, stable, a more restful, less stressful uh, um, being, you know, that that it's, uh, let's see. So I'm all for any kind of therapy that's going to improve the well-being of the individual to reduce stress levels. Uh, it can't hurt. I mean, that, that's a definite it can't hurt that we of course get into a problem where we start to see competing therapies that want to try to introduce things and say they actually provide a benefit when that is really quite lacking that there's a benefit uh but i think if we look at the couple holistically uh again that that, that luncheon that i had yesterday with the psychologist uh we, we were talking about the, the whole journey and and I like to talk about this journey from, from the laboratory side in that, you know, the embryologist's job is to get the gametes and embryos safely to their destination, wherever that is. And we don't know what that destination is because we can't tell for sure if they're viable. The same could be said for the couple as they're coming in to get them safely to their destination, whatever that happens to be at the end. And so it, it sounds great, this, you know, the examples you're giving from this Indian clinic where uh, they're using meditation and some, maybe some you know, reframing things around what are you expecting out of this? What are your expectations for the outcome? So that when you're, you get to those points, you're hopefully a bit more open to, well, maybe this is going to be a different course in life instead of it being a make or break event. I like the fact that in the UK, and I don't know whether um, you're kind of hearing, hearing this, Dean, or whether this has kind of come out, but there's kind of talk now in the UK that we should really be viewing IVF as a course of treatment, not just one, 
So it's not just one IVF because, mm. as we yes. know, you know, success rates in yes. increase by the time you get to the third. Um, right. that, and that we should that language needs to be changing with our patients, Absolutely. and we need to be saying that this is a course of treatment, just like having a course of treatment for a another condition, um, sure. and that is the best way to, for um, patients to really take on board that mindset and to not, I guess, put all your eggs in one basket. Excuse the pun, but you know, it's very true, isn't it? Yeah, because yes. Right. Well, the majority of patients really believe, you know, they've hit the ladder. They're going to they're going to be pregnant on that first transfer. And we know that it's, you know, a third, maybe depending on the age lower. Uh, and so no doubt to have that expectation up front that, well, you've got a frozen embryo or more. You may have to go through another one. Uh, you know, an analogous one that we're actually using in uh, New Zealand is is around egg freezing for social egg freezing, because uh, we know there's a study that came out of UC, uh, UCSF that showed that the biggest decisional regret for freezing eggs came about by uh, those who had few eggs frozen. So they got fewer than they expected. So we took that and we said, well, let's go ahead and put together a package where we say, you may need three cycles to get the number of eggs you need. And so we put that up front for an expectation because we didn't want to have that decisional regret. So I think the same applies for IVF is to, to really make it clear that, yeah, this, this could take several. You guys need to be ready for the long haul. I think that's it, isn't it? It's managing your expectations, having all the information from the outset, mm -hmm. knowing that this isn't a guarantee. And I think these are quite significant conversations that aren't often happened because people might walk into these clinics with such high expectations of it being the answer that then that disappointment is, is it, it can be relationship breaking, soul destroying. We know it has massive impacts on mental health. So ideally, we want the support there. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a different way of looking at it, isn't it? Um, and I think actually probably more realistic way. And I guess kind of stopping that, I mean, clearly, you know, any failed cycle, whether it's first, second, third, fourth, whatever, is a massive disappointment, but it's kind of viewing that, okay, it might not necessarily happen on this first cycle, but your chances of the second cycle increase and your chances of the third cycle increase, um, and that it is that course of treatment. Yeah. You can't help but imagine coming in with all the hopes and dreams of, you know, and especially if you've already been through a year probably or more of trying and you've got the stress that went into that and now you're at the point where you're saying this is going to be it and and you put so much hope in that first attempt and there's so much stress involved and expectations and for it to go off the rails a little bit say the stem doesn't work and it gets canceled or there's no fertilization i mean there's so much hype and expectation that i agree you know if we could if we could somehow tone that down and get a bit more real about the process the, the you know the course of treatment but that would definitely be helpful well on that note i think um it's been really interesting talking to you dean as always and hearing about um the, the work that you're doing and about the difference in i suppose um treatment around the world it's always good because we know the podcast has a global audience and, and i do like hearing from voices all over so thank you um for your time especially as you're having a jam-packed few days at the conference oh you're welcome it's been a pleasure i learned quite a lot i always do when we we have an expert on the show what do you think about dean's take on especially with the embryo transfers and, and the work that needs to be done to help us understand more really interesting and also i love the fact that that is their in New Zealand that that is their default to put a single embryo back 
But as I kind of asked the question with him, how, how difficult can that be with conversations of, of individuals who really do want, it might be the last chance, and, and ask to have two put back? And he said that they have that 3% of individuals where they will put back more than one and those could be in situations where couples might be at their last chance and it makes sense to do that so I kind of quite like the fact that it was a default but they're still being very holistic and individualized patient care looking at the situation in front of them and making a decision which I think was great yeah and we'll put links to uh, Dean's contacts in the show notes which are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash single embryo. All of Dean's details will be there, as will a link to the Multiple Births Foundation if you are in the UK and want to understand more about the work they do. And a link to the HFEA. Uh, Dean was referring to the different league tables. And if you are looking at choosing your clinic at the point of listening, then it's always good to uh, go and refer back to the HFEA website. And be sure to rate, review, subscribe and share this podcast. And of course, you can follow us on our socials. I'm at Fertility Poddy on Insta and Twitter. And on Instagram, I'm Your Fertility Journey. And on Twitter, I'm Fert Journey. Thank you, as always, for listening. And until the next time.